You're listening to The Ascent Archive, a podcast of oral histories with rock climbers collected by the University of Utah and produced by the J. Willard Marriott Library. I'm Tali Kasuchi, librarian, rock climber, and oral historian. And I'm Rachel Whitman, and I'm also a librarian. For decades, memory workers, including historians, librarians, and archivists, have conducted oral histories to document life experiences of notable groups of people. These oral history transcripts, and sometimes their accompanying audio and video, are kept in the archives of libraries and museums around the world with varying degrees of access. This podcast, focusing on interviews with rock climbers, is an innovative approach to make oral histories more accessible and easier to listen to on the go or at faster speeds. The Ascent Archive podcast features oral histories that I conducted for the Rock Climbers Oral History Project and others from the American West Center's Ever Al Cooley Oral History Project. To find out more about these collections, visit the Ascent Archive website, which is included in the show description. You're about to hear an oral history that is unedited. Please excuse possible interruptions, sound quality issues, potentially outdated or offensive terminology, and the occasional curse word. In this episode, you'll hear from Mike Call, or MC. Mike is a climbing developer and filmmaker. His climbing films are classics, and frankly, many of the newer films are replicating his style. Additionally, Mike worked in the climbing industry and was a course center for the Snowbird World Cups and other competitions. He's also developed multiple routes and boulders. Hope you enjoy. Good afternoon. It's October 6, 2022. I'm Tali Kasuchi, and I'm talking with Mike Cole at the Marriott Library in Salt Lake City about rock climbing and filmmaking. So to get us started, Mike, will you tell me a little bit about yourself, um, where you were born, and what it was like growing up? Yeah, I grew up here in Salt Lake City, and um, I was born in 1970, and um, we moved out of state for a little while, but I ended up back here at about five years old, four years old, something like that. And, um, yeah, my dad was a pretty active person. He was athletic as a kid, too. So he'd take us out climbing and hiking, or not climbing, um, hiking and um, camping a lot when we were kids. So I kind of got a love for the outdoors, I think, right off the bat. I liked, I liked being out in the wild. I liked waking up in the, you know, in the cold and in a tent and stuff. So um, I think it helped me appreciate the outdoors a lot right off the bat. But then... Um, I was probably 16 or 15 when I first saw an actual rock climber, like a proper rock climber. And um, uh, there's a friend of mine who's no longer alive named Patrick Marino. And he was climbing at Storm Mountain, or at, uh, sorry, Dogwood. Um, And I watched him lead this thing that's probably like 5'7". But at the time, it looked like Spider-Man. You know, I couldn't believe what I was watching. It was like amazing. I was like, that is the most ridiculous, cool thing I've ever seen. And he was a good climber, but... You know, I think by even standards back then, he was probably a pretty moderate climber, you know. But to me, I was just like, wow, it looked like magic. So definitely got, like, a set a hook in me somewhere at that point. And then we, our family moved out to Holiday, where I ha- we had a house right below Pete's Rock. And um, it was before 215 got put in, and it was a dirt road. And I used to, with my friends, cross that dirt road and then cross Wasatch Boulevard and then scramble to the trailhead of Mount Olympus, and we would a lot of times just go hiking up Mount Olympus and camp up there. Or, um, yeah, just we—I don't think we even cared about summiting. We just got up on the mountain to get away. 
And then um, one of the times I was up there, I watched some guy climbing at Pete's Rock with chalk and climbing shoes. And I remember thinking, like, what is what are those shoes all about? What's that on his hands? I don't remember my friend Patrick having chalk, but um, I was definitely really fascinated. So after that guy left, I kind of started trying to climb a little bit on the traverse at the base of Pete's Rock, trying to figure out, you know, I really liked the feeling of it. And um, so I ended up going to, I think I went to REI when it was down by Brickyard Plaza and Merrill Bitter was there. And I was reading every catalog I could find from REI, trying to decipher what all this lingo was and what kind of climbing shoes, like what they did, how they worked, what I wanted. Because I knew I needed to get climbing shoes if I was going to be a climber. And um, after a couple times going in there, at first I just bought hiking shoes. And then, you know, I'd save up money and I'd go in there with, you know, 20 bucks and try to buy a single carabiner just because you needed to have a carabiner if you're going to be a climber. And, um, Merrill was in there and he took mercy on me and he was like, you know, if you want to go where real climbers hang out, you should go over to IME, which was maybe, you know, 500 yards away really close at the time it was on Highland Drive so I went there and um, met Doug Heinrich and I think Stuart Rockman was there that day and kind of, they talked to me about shoes for a while and I think I ended up buying my first pair of climbing shoes within a week I had to save more money but um, bought some Dolomite Magicas which are these stiff as a board pointy horrible you know a solo climbing shoes but um Anyway, yeah, so um, I had a friend named, um, well, Mike Beck went to school with me, but we didn't really know each other that well, but I knew he was a climber, and we both had a common friend named um, Dan Colert, who was a really good rock climber, and he had just gotten back from a Mormon mission, and he knew I was in, like, a troublemaker as a kid. I'd just gotten out of a drug rehab program and didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I was kind of, like, going to the U, but pretty focused on trying to be a climber too and one day he just said hey you want to go out climbing and he took me out and we went to the billboard in American Fork which had just started getting bolted there was maybe like half as many routes as there are now on it but we hiked all the way up to the billboard and I watched sport climbing for the first time or tried sport climbing for the first time and I couldn't even get off the ground on any of the routes that were there at the time they were all 511 or 512 but I was like Standing next to Conrad Anchor, Seth Shaw, um, Mike Beck, Drew Bedford, you know, like Merrill, everybody was there. Like everybody in the core climbing scene that I can remember were at the crag that day. And it was like this feeding frenzy at that crag, you know, at the time. So it was like new roots and Jeff Pedersen was in the cave bolting steep things and everybody was just on fire. And I was just this little kid, just like dazed. I was just like, holy crap, this is intense. You know, everybody was so strong and, um, but they kind of just slowly started accepting me and like, you know, be, like being nice to me and like inviting me to go climbing. And I was, um, I built a climbing wall in my backyard, an adjustable climbing wall when I was like, yeah, probably like a month earlier. And I went to IME. No, no, I guess it was right about the same time. I went to IME and I said, uh, I need to buy some climbing holes. And Doug showed me this. Xerox copy of a printout of how to make your own climbing wall that was adjustable by Metolius and it was like a, a parts list and an assembly instructions list of like go to your hardware store hand them this list they'll they'll tell you how much it costs and then you take it home and you put it together like this and you're gonna need this many this drill bit these these this hardware these tools and um 
so I did. I went and I paid like six, seven hundred bucks for some materials just to build a wall. So I had this adjustable climbing wall in my backyard that my dad was pretty annoyed about, and um, I had no holds. So I go to IME and I try to buy holds, and I buy like three or four holds at a time. And Doug was just like, "What are you doing?" And I was just, you know, nobody really knew anything about indoor climbing at the time, and. I told him I built the wall and he's like, well, that's crazy. And he's like, here, these are, I'll give you a discount. He gave me like four or five more holds for discount. So I ended up with maybe 12 holds or something. And I would just rearrange the holds in, in the T-nuts, you know, different ways. Like I'd get bored of a problem and then I'd reset it and try to do something else with the same 12 holds or it was crazy. Um, and then about that time, Doug was starting a co-op climbing gym right next door in this old body shop that was... It was meant to be just a private club for the investors. So just, it was the first climbing gym in Utah, and it was probably maybe the second or third in the whole country at the time, like in terms of a climbing gym. And um, he said, hey, do you want to go in on this um, co-op with us? And it was 32 people total, kicked in 500 bucks a piece, and we all had a key, and... I remember I have, I have video of Ted Wilson and his son walking in the day it opened. And it was just like this, it looks, it's kind of like a Sasquatch sighting, but he came through and looked at it because he was like this legendary mountaineer from around here, climber guy, and the mayor at the time. Anyway, so all of a sudden we had a climbing gym and it was pretty much all of the local climbers, really, like everybody I knew and people I didn't know. I mean, the, the scene was so small back then, you know, there were so few... I mean, it was probably less than 50 or 75 climbers total in the whole state, you know? I mean, I would bet there's or maybe less than 100 of people who would consider themselves like rabid climbers, you know? And so, yeah, that was like 88 or 9, I think. And I was just literally like, like I dropped out of college right about then, right in like 90, 91, I, I was going to the U and I, I just was so hooked on climbing and I got good good enough to where I, I thought I could actually be a good climber that I quit going to school and Doug offered me a job working as the first manager of that climbing gym and I said hell yeah because that basically just meant I could climb full time you know I could just climb every day I had the key put on whatever music I wanted and um, so yeah we, we had a climbing gym and I climbed every day and I got stronger and I met Boone Speed at the time and I met Remet Mike back again and got to be friends and then um, yeah I met everybody I mean basically some of my oldest friends I met during that time period you know like my strongest mentors and people that took me up Big Walls and Yosemite and Zion and yeah like Waco Tanks and those first three four years that I was climbing I got to see a lot with these guys you know like a lot of cool trips so and then I guess that leads to the filming stuff, which my dad had a little Sony Handycam, a little white Hi8 video camera, and he used it for home videos at the time, and I just borrowed it and started shooting my friends climbing once in a while on, you know, the tapes that he had. So some of my oldest climbing videos have family stuff in between, you know, like shots like there'd be a shot of like somebody trying something in Little Cottonwood and then there'd be a shot of my little sister playing the violin you know and then another shot of climbing um, but I started compiling stuff and um, we were skateboarding a little back then and I'd watch 
skate videos on VHS, and I was always kind of like, gosh, you know, the, the, these kids aren't high tech what they're doing with these climb or these skate videos. They're low tech. They're really kind of crass and and crude, and I loved it because it was it felt real. Like I felt like I got to know the kids in the videos. So I started getting this idea to maybe compile some of the climbing footage and making a climbing video. And at the time. The only climbing videos that were out were like these kind of bigger productions, like, and there were great movies like Masters of Stone or Moving Over Stone or Painted Spiders. Some of these, I can't remember, there was probably only like six or seven at the time. Um, but I always kind of felt like they were trying too hard to be fancy or trying too hard to be Hollywood or like over edited. And there was narration that I never really loved. It always felt kind of awkward, you know? I never, I never felt like I got to know the people in the videos, I guess. I never felt like I really knew them. They were kind of put on these pedestals. And my, I just made a video one day by taking six or seven videotapes and playing them on my camera back to my TV and looking at the time code and noting when the time code of the clips that I liked were, and then I'd write it down and then go to the next clip and write that down. And then um, there was a guy in town who had a video toast editing system, which was probably one of the first home style editing systems. You couldn't put them in your home still. It was too expensive. But um, he had this system where he could ingest the tapes, digitize them, put them on a hard drive, and then do nonlinear editing. And it was the first time I'd really seen it done. And it was really early. It was way before any of the modern software. And I paid him, I think he charged me 75 bucks an hour to edit. And at the time I was dead broke, you know, I had no money and I was like, so I had to be really efficient about how I used the time. So I was literally like, okay, tape six, minute two to minute 205, take that clip. And then you go in and capture that. And they do the same thing with the next tape. And you know, and I was just yelling instructions at him, and I'd say, "Okay, now go take the first, take the second tape, fourth clip, put that first, and then I take second, uh, third tape, fifth clip, and put that second. And I literally just told him how to lay out the whole video, and um, we basically came up with Yank on this in like four hours. I mean, I think we basically edited the thing in like, and it was it was so. I mean, I was using Led Zeppelin. I was using Star Wars clips. I was using clips from Twin Peaks and, like, things that I liked. And just, just throwing in little tiny two-second clips of things and just, you know, taking other people's work and putting it in this stupid climbing video that I was going to just hand to five of my friends. You know, I was never going to sell it. It was just, like, kind of a fun thing, you know. And, um, and right about that same time, I had... We had sold the body shop climbing gym to Dave Bell, who actually opened it up for public use, and then it became like the first public gym in Utah. And I started working at, after a couple of other jobs, I ended up working at Black Diamond Retail as the first, like one of the first retail employees. It was like me and Seth Shaw and Conrad Anker and Doug Heinrich. And I was working there, but I was making these videos and then my friend Dave and his partner Rob Gilbert decided to make their own climbing holds for the body shop because climbing holds were so expensive so they started Pusher which was really just a project just to be able to make climbing holds for the gym so they didn't have to spend all this money on climbing holds so they asked me I was at the time I got into at the same like all in the same like two three years I was like really excited to become a 
um, high-level uh, root setter. So I got um, certified to become one of the first four or five national nationally certified core setters. They were called root setters back then. Um, so because I was a root setter and I was qualified, they asked me to shape holds for them because I knew a lot about climbing holds. And plus I'd worked at the body shop for a while. So I was shaping holds, making the videos, still trying to climb, working at the retail store. And the pusher thing started taking off and they started selling it to other gyms and they, we took them out to a trade show in Reno and got enough of a response that we decided to go at it full on and start a real business. And I quit my job at Black Diamond and started working at Pusher full-time as the first employee there. So it was Dave and Rob and me. And then Boone started shaping as well. And, and the Pusher boomed pretty quickly for a few years, probably most of the 90s. And in that time, I took the videos and used them as essentially marketing tools for Pusher. So it became the Pusher videos. So it was yank on this, one, two, and three. And then I did probably, like, I think I've done something like 20 or something feature-length videos. I mean, anything over 45 minutes or an hour is probably full-length video. So, yeah, I mean, the Pusher story is a whole different thing. But um, at the end of the 90s, I did a video called Frequent Flyers, which was kind of what I consider my first real documentary film. And um, that was me and Boone and Obi Carrion going around the world and documenting bouldering as it was kind of early on and going to a bunch of different climbing areas, which was amazing. And I kind of realized right then that I really just wanted to make films. I was just like, this, this is all I really want to do. Like, it, I don't want to make plastic holds anymore. I don't like what it's doing to my body. I don't like what it's doing to the environment. I didn't like working in this messy kind of dangerous place and even though I love the company I still do I didn't want to spend my life there you know and I had my son in 2000 with my wife at the time and it's a pretty scary time to quit change careers but um you know it's I knew I, it's new I knew it's what I wanted to do so um yeah I kept climbing all through the 90s kept climbing into the 2000s as I was starting my filmmaking career and or professionalizing my filmmaking career and um, still managed to make climbing films while I was learning how to make proper TV and film techniques so I could actually know how to light and shoot bigger projects with the goal of being hopefully making more money for, and spending less time doing it, you know. Um, yeah, and I've been climbing pretty much, I don't think I've taken more than maybe four or five months off of climbing ever, you know, I mean, usually due to surgeries or something, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've kept, kept my hands in the climbing world. I've worked on feature films that include rock climbing in them, like Point Break, or um, I worked on 127 Hours as a camera operator because they needed somebody to be able to shoot off of a rope for a lot of the scenes, and then Danny Boyle, asked me to stay on and do more shooting because he liked what I was doing with non-climbing stuff or non-high angle stuff so that was pretty fun and yeah I've just had a lot of really cool opportunities you know like feel pretty lucky it's a weird thing to have it spiral from rock climbing videos as a kid to actually making a career out of it you know 
I don't even know where I, how far down the list we've gotten. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, what do you think drew you to making that first, those first few films? Um, I think, so early on, I think I had an aspiration that I could actually be a really good climber. I don't know why. I thought, I just thought it was possible that I could, if I train hard enough and if I spent the time and studied it and really like practiced a lot, I could. And I had these inklings of possibility where I was like, I did my first 513 in the first seven or eight months of climbing or something. And that made me think, well, if I keep this trajectory up, I could certainly climb 514 and, you know, harder and just like keep up with the national standards at the time. And at the time, really, 514 was the limit, 14A. And um, and I kept kind of mowing, you know, getting closer to that as as I was working. But then work and life and my own limitations kicked in. And I was kind of like, it was pretty obvious that my friends were much better climbers than me. And they were probably going to stay that way. And at the same time, I kind of realized that it didn't really matter. Like, I like the creative side of the filmmaking so much that that part of it, appealed to me almost as much and sometimes more than the climbing itself like I like the artistic side of filmmaking and like trying to figure out how to get a shot and trying to trying to figure out a way to put it together in a sequence and and it kind of became less important to me to be a good climber and I wanted to be a good filmmaker you know so I mean I think I've always I still have these hopes of getting better at climbing but um my goals are a little more realistic and I, I also prioritize in a different way now, you know. But I, I did love the creativity side of it, you know. I loved... Um, yeah, I, I think filmmaking is probably one of my... one of the most interesting artistic mediums because it encompasses, you know, photography, storytelling, writing, colors, painting, like all these different types of aesthetics that you can draw into and encompass or include in the in the art form that it feels pretty limitless what you can do with that medium for storytelling you know and for art and um expression and i I really like that kind of anybody could make a become a filmmaker and tell their own version of, of a story you know and um i mean it's once you have the basic skill set and gear and stuff it's it's pretty I mean, anybody could be a filmmaker, really, you know? I mean, because I think everybody has a point of view, but um, I really liked that. I liked I liked making videos that were really different than what was on the market, and I feel like, in hindsight, I think it really did change. I think my style of climbing videos changed um, the type of films that were made. Like Josh Lowell from Big Up Production told me once that he saw my first video and his dad came from filmmaking. Like his dad was a pretty well-known filmmaker and um, he saw my videos and he was like, well, shit, if that guy can do that, I can do it. I mean, I've got that camera at my house and I can do that. So it inspired him to pick up the camera and make his climbing first climbing video. And, and I, I think that means more to me than how my first climbing video did, you know, like how well it was received or how good it was. It wasn't that, it was terrible. You know, it was like, my first video and it was like slapped together in three hours like how good could it be but that it inspired Josh to start his filmmaking career which he's done amazingly well at and um, and Brett Lowell too 
And, you know, I think, you know, one of the things I did back in the pusher era was I started a video magazine that was an online video magazine that was it was modeled after the skateboarding video magazine I saw called 411 but it was online and we did stories and photography and video clips when you couldn't really even download videos on the internet it was a, such a new thing the internet was that there was no bandwidth for it so you couldn't really like you had to make the videos like 120 pixels by 240 pixels at the most because nobody could wait that long to watch a video it just took way too long to download over a modem but we were trying you know and what we were doing was I feel like really pretty cutting edge at the time. And I, I had this partner there named Mark Russo, who was our um, web developer and um, web designer. And uh, he was really learning Flash video at the time. Flash was a big thing. And he figured out a way to turn videos into Flash files, which were pretty small files. And people could actually, if you downloaded the player, you could watch these climbing videos online, which, it, I mean, that was before YouTube, you know, that was before. I mean, there was no YouTube. I mean, it's really hard to imagine, but it's like you couldn't just go online and watch videos. And we were doing it. And we were doing stuff that for any sport was pretty bleeding edge, you know. We were pushing it pretty hard and paying a lot of money in bandwidth to make it happen. But people loved it, you know. It was The first one was called Smack Magazine. And then the second one was um, Climax Media. And then the third one we did was uh, Momentum Video Magazine. But they were all basically grown-up versions of the one before, you know, and I'm really proud of that because I feel like even though it was a failed business, it, I think it influenced a lot of filmmakers with their phones now, and like people like Mello, the way, the way that Mello Climbing makes videos now is very much like the way we made those videos back then, which was of the moment, what's really happening, very down-to-earth, you know, some more raw than others, but... Um, I feel like it all comes stacked on top of the history of these other things, you know, like, I mean, I still have people come up to me that are older now, but they say that they miss those old videos and they want me to bring them back online. And, you know, I probably have them on a hard drive somewhere, but, you know, it's, it's, it's cool to me to be a part of so many things that help start something else. You know, I like that. I like that. I think that part of the, the, of climbing, I mean, I think that's why I like developing roots. I think it's why I like going to new areas or, um, yeah, trying something new. I like I like being in on it on the ground floor. You know, I like to, I like the idea of being a part of something new and starting something that turns into something big. You know, like pusher holds helped change. I think how climbing holds are shaped and what how people climb on them. And I'm proud that I was part of that. You know, I mean, I'm proud of my friends and that we were punk enough to try it, you know? Like, we didn't, we didn't know well enough to, know enough to know that we probably shouldn't have done it, you know? <laughs> like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's interesting looking back how much happened in those first few years of climbing, you know? Like, it was like this creative burst, like, like this crazy, really concentrated amount of time, really, when you look at it, but a lot of things were going on at the same time, you know? Mm-hmm. Were you um, artistic? Or creative before you found filmmaking? I didn't think so. I was never good at drawing. I couldn't... Like, I I loved to write. Um, I liked reading a lot. I liked... I mean, I I think I did pretty well at creative writing classes in school. It was probably the only place I actually did pretty well at school. Um, 
my, yeah, I never really thought of myself as creative or artistic. I didn't really, I just thought I was like lost. I didn't really have any idea what I was good at. You know, I felt like I was pretty mediocre at everything I tried. And at least that's how it felt when I'd get my report cards or like, you know, um, you know, I was never big enough to be like another kind of an athlete. Like I I played football with my brothers or basketball with my brothers, but like I was never going to be big enough to play against people that are good, you know, or yeah, I mean, I was decently coordinated, I think, and somewhat athletic, but I don't think I was very good at any of it, you know, or same with art or creating things. I just didn't really, I don't think I had the confidence or the perspective to look at it that way. I was like kind of waiting to figure out where what I was supposed to do, you know, like I wasn't really driven as a kid to like do something, you know, I wasn't like, I'm definitely going to go to college and become a doctor or something. I was never like that. You know, I was kind of just like skateboarding and, you know, just being a kid, you know, and got in trouble as a kid a lot. I was like doing a lot of partying and prioritizing a lot of (laughs) the wrong things probably, but um, driving my parents crazy and getting up to no good. But then climbing, it's interesting how climbing became this gravitational force for good in a lot of ways, you know, like the older guys that I was hanging out with were five to ten years older than me and they were they had a perspective that was really grounding I mean when I first started climbing I met guys who died the next year and for several years we lost a lot of friends in the mountains and that created this perspective that was pretty solemn and real and like I feel like that generation of climbers that I grew up with had a real there was a lot of real darkness about a lot of us like a, um, kind of morbidity or, or um, cynicism a little bit just kind of like maybe it's not cynicism it, it's sort of like you know there used to be this tradition with Doug where if any of our friends were going to the big mountains on an expedition we'd go to the pub and get a beer with them because it was kind of like you never know you know like this it just seemed natural to go say goodbye to them before they go in the mountains because you just never know. And, you know, losing our friends like Alex Lowe and Seth Shaw and, you know, I mean, so many people died in such short order. Mug Stump, like, it just kept happening. Like, Steve Carruthers in the backcountry right here around Salt Lake. And, you know, there was just people we were climbing with every day and all of a sudden they were dead. And, it created this somber like perspective on life that made you really realize like what's important and and what's what you should prioritize I think you know and it's a little dark but Mm -hmm. I also feel like it kind of helped me kind of prioritize how I wanted to spend my life you know like society's pressure to go to school and get a job and get a mortgage and get a career and get diabetes and get cancer you know like all these things that seemed inevitable when I was growing up all of a sudden it's kind of like you know what right now is all that matters kind of you know like right now like take that trip go if somebody invites you to go somewhere go somewhere like my first girlfriend was older than me and she was French and she asked me if I wanted to go to France to go climbing while I was still living with my parents and I was like this is how it happens you know this is how I move out like basically packed up my stuff and went to France with her for a couple months and changed my life and 
came back and just never moved back home. You know, I just moved in with her. And, and yeah, I mean, that's probably somewhat negative, probably, or not negative, but probably somewhat destructive in some ways. But also, I probably wouldn't have done anything that I have ended up doing without having a little bit of that perspective. Like, right now is what matters, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that really formed, like, a... Um, decision tree for me where it was like take things take things as they come like they actually matter like make this decision completely like really don't hesitate like even if it seems weird like dropping out of school my grandpa was absolutely like upset and at his limit with me that I would drop out of college and and I was just like it stopped my heart I, I don't like this isn't what I should be doing right now. I should be with these guys. These are my like my new family members, and I want to go experience life with these guys. Like I, I think climbing anything on a rope or going far places or seeing amazing sunsets or risking your life on rock climbing stuff or whatever. Like these these experiences are so real and so tangible and so like meaningful that once you've had that, it's really hard to go. I'm just going to go back to normal life and become uh, whatever, a lawyer like Mike Beck did, you know, like, mm-hmm. it's hard it's like you got to like give up some magical part, it feels like you're giving up a magical part mm-hmm. of your life mm-hmm. and I don't know, I, th- I think yeah, I think it's all intertwined somehow I'm, I keep trying to figure it all out Like I, I, when I look back on my life like I'm editing a film right now about one of my early uh, mentors named Mariah Craner, who was the Black Diamond marketing director for 20 years or so, and her she was super Im- important to my formative years because she really instilled on me and a lot of people just like if you're going to make a decision, make the decision. Like don't don't hum and haw about it. You know, like really think about it. Really weigh everything and then when you jump in jump all the way in and just don't hesitate like she was the one that encouraged me to continue making my videos after I made my first one I showed it to her and she was like you have to keep doing this and I don't know if she meant you have to keep doing this because you're so bad at it you need to get better or you have to get to keep doing this because she saw something in them but either way I kept doing them anyway that was a weird tangent <laughs> <laughs> at, at the kind of that time period um you know it's there's more conversation now around like grief mm-hmm. were you all talking about this or like what type yeah. of the conversations were you have when you were all grieving together well you know it it was so it was almost like being in the military the way it was discussed it was so present there was death always around us or like we were just getting over someone dying and then someone else dies or mm-hmm. not, maybe not even over it it was like just the sting of it or the newness of it had just started to go away a little bit and then it was like are you fucking kidding me and you get another phone call or you walk into the shop I mean IME was always the center of information like you go in and do shop time at IME and I used to hang out there for hours just listening to people talk and like when I was a noob I would just go in there and listen to like like Dana Hauser coming back from Alaska or you know mugs coming back from some place in Baffin Island or whatever and I just listened to these legends and like I didn't even know what they were talking about honestly like I, they would just talk about places that I'd never heard of and I like oh yeah you know we were at whatever 
going across this glacier to go do this wall and it, like now I kind of know what those places are but at the time I was just like I was a sport climber in Boulder and I didn't know any of that and and yet they were like in hindsight they were as good as anybody in the country at this I mean Alex Lowe came into the shop right when Black Diamond started coming to town and like he and Conrad were going climbing on trips and they were just they were just normal dudes who were also these demigods they were just like these like massive hulking physically imposing super friendly sweethearts who had a great sense of humor and like um you know I remember climbing with mugs the only time I remember climbing with mugs being there I was with Dan Kohler and we were in the dihedrals in Little Cottonwood and mugs led black and white John and Mary and I was just like He's like, yeah, you want to try it? And I, I tried it and I fell off of it. You know, I was like, this is the hardest thing I've ever tried. And he was just like, oh, you keep trying it. You'll, it'll get it. You'll figure it out. And just this big dude, you know, just this big, super, super sweet dude. And then he died pretty much the next, I don't know, the next six months or something. And and I'm sure that was harder on the generation before me than it was on me. But I understood the gravity of it, you know, because I saw how it impacted grown men and grown women and like, um, his ex-girlfriends. I mean, I remember seeing all these people around for years and they were still busted up about mugs. And then, you know, Seth. And I mean, it was kind of, the conversation was kind of like just matter of fact, but it was also really somber and sweet, you know? It's like, your friends matter, you know? And it kind of made us all closer in a lot of ways, I think. I mean, it made us all like appreciate our time with each other and like, we told each other we loved each other and, and not all the time, but it was like in a way that we were still, you know, we didn't feel like we were, you know, getting too personal, but it was really personal. Like you were doing these cool trips with these amazing friends and like having these experiences where you're like, sometimes you're surviving near death experiences or you're having the most amazing climbing experience of your life with someone who you now know really well. And those conversations like, you get vulnerable, you know, you just have real conversations. It wasn't macho. It wasn't, it wasn't too, it wasn't, um, I mean, it wasn't a lot of words. It was just more like, yeah, this is important. You know, like it's important to me to tell you, like you mean a lot to me and, you know, come home safe. You know, it was like really important to have those really simple, but direct conversations about it, you know? And then like, I mean, yeah, I, I've never, I've never been in a situation where I've watched one of my friends die, thank God, but I think about it all the time, you know, it's like, it's totally possible, like, it's possible to be at the Hellgate Cliffs and watch somebody die right next to you because a rock fell on them, I mean, it happens to people all the time, and it doesn't matter whether you're bouldering in Little Cottonwood or at Hellgate, death is really close to us as climbers, I mean, we take it for granted and we play it down because there's hundreds of thousands of climbers here in Salt Lake now, but it is really there, you know, all the time. Like, I, I every time I go up to one of the crags with easy easy climbs on them, I watch people make mistakes, and I'm like, I don't want to be here when you hit the ground, you know. Like, I've, like one of my first, oh my gosh, when I was 17, I was just getting out of a drug rehab program, and the, one of the kids in the program with me were, um, his name was Chris Pack, and he and I went up to Pete's Rock when I still lived at home. Drove up there in his Land Cruiser, little 70-something Land Cruiser. And we started traversing around in our brand-new-at-the-time climbing shoes. And I did the standard 510 traverse along the base of the 
cliff because I loved doing that because you get pumped on it and it felt like you were still going somewhat uphill. And um, he got bored and started climbing up this off width that's right at the middle of the wall that's probably maybe 5'9 at the hardest, but it goes from a slab to a slightly vertical section back to a little bit of a slab. And he got bored with the slab, so he traversed out onto the face. Out of the, He left the crack, goes out on the face, did one move off of the slab onto the vertical face, and then couldn't reverse it. So he was hanging by his hands on a good hold, but he couldn't step back down to the slab. Like, he couldn't figure out how to reverse the move. So he's up there basically getting pumped, and he's probably 25 feet off the ground, which isn't that far. But I hear him kind of moaning about how he can't step down, and I get off the traverse and I walk below him and I look up at him and, I, I, and I'm like look, see what to do you just you need to let go with your hand and just step step back down to this ledge below you this foothold and he'd kind of somewhat lower his foot down and touch it gen- gently but he'd have to let go with his hands to put his foot down on this edge that's what it looked like I mean we were beginner climbers so who knows it could have probably been easier than that but after a while he started saying, I think I can make it. And I realized what he was talking about was jumping from his stance 25 feet off the ground out over my head where there's this sidewalk of, you know, quartzite going up the hill next to the crag. There's this talus field behind me that he thought he could jump into and just slide it out because it's on an angle and it had loose talus on it. And I was like, I could see the whole thing. It was like the, the math didn't work. Like you'd have to do it. 15 foot or 20 foot no no probably 15 foot standing reverse broad jump you have to just push off the rock and go somehow 20 feet behind like there's just no way you know he's not going to jump that far I mean if he had 200 feet to go that distance he could but for 25 feet he's just going to fall straight down you know and he kept trying a little bit after a while he just pushed off and I looked up and watched him smash into the ground right in front of me like literally two feet from me he just pile drived into the quartzite and I watched his whole body crumple instead of bouncing or rolling or deflecting the energy. He just like absorbed all the energy into his body, and he broke. I mean, everything. He broke a lot of bones, and like I didn't know at the time what it was. And he rolled over, and I checked his head. I'd taken an EMT class or wilderness medicine class at IME one time, and I kind of knew the basics, like check, make sure he's breathing and all that. And his head wasn't bleedings much so it looked like he didn't have head wounds so I was like I've got to run down the road and try to find help I couldn't find his car keys so I ran in my climbing shoes down Wasatch Boulevard for like half a mile or whatever it is three quarters of a mile to the first community that was there over by um, the south side of Olympus and the first one who saw me probably thought I was completely insane I had like long hair and I have long hair I can't remember now kind of long hair and I was sweaty I didn't have a shirt on I had chalk all over me I was like wearing climbing shoes and you know it's just like a mess you know and I'm frantic I'm, I've been sprinting and climbing shoes for 30, three quarters of a mile and this woman slams her door on my face when I ask her if I could use the phone and then this guy across the street saw me he's like yeah come in here and called the ambulance run back down the road by the time I got down to the road back down to Chris he was rolled over on this bench of kind of like sort of a step in the quartzite that was a chair and he was just sitting there with his arms up kind of like he was in a lawn chair or something on these rocks and he had his feet hanging off the side of this other rock and I said how are you doing Chris and he goes 
he was like trying to sound, trying to sound like Eddie Murphy because he was funny at the time. And he's like, my damn feet fell off. And he's like totally in shock, you know, completely endorphin, like out of his mind. And I looked at his feet and both of his climbing shoes. I'll never forget. He had these Scarpa climbing shoes, these La Sportiva or these Scarpa um, La Menestrals. They were like stiff as a board, really expensive $200 climbing shoes or something. And um, both of his feet were still in the shoes, but the shoes were attached to his legs by what looked like scotch tape. And I realized that he had compound fractured both of his feet off his legs and they were barely hanging on by just the skin. So they were just swinging in the breeze, both of his feet. And it was the weirdest thing to watch to see that. And I, and I saw his arm was facing the wrong direction and um, his face was swelling up. I think he had hit his knee into his face. Um, he'd broken both arms, both legs. Um, I mean, he was alive and it was amazing that he was alive, but I, I learned right then and there like kind of how only 20 feet of climbing can fuck you up you know like it's, it's be really easy to get hurt even just falling off of 15 20 feet of climbing I mean, you really get hurt and um from that point on i never ever got into soloing i was i mean people all around me were soloing at the time that was a big thing back then and i was just i couldn't do it i couldn't put it in my brain in that space where i could be like okay i'm just gonna cast off here you know because i knew what a human body could do falling from even 20 feet you know mm-hmm. anyway he ended up in a wheelchair for a couple of years and my girlfriend fell in love with him when we were taking care of him. I remember that, so we stopped talking for a while. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, I didn't really solo. I got into highballing a little bit when it first started happening, but, um, yeah, not, not that much. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Did you have any close calls yourself on any trips? Um, most of my near-death experiences have come from, like almost crashing in a balloon or helicopter or like I got typhoid fever when I was working on Point Break and nearly died in the jungle a couple times and had 106 and a half degree fever twice over the course of two weeks and um yeah I mean Boone and I rented a hot air balloon to take photos and video from when we were in rural China and came within inches of crashing the balloon into the side of a cliff like right after we did that like two weeks later some tourists did die in the same um, area in a hot air balloon because there's no regulations in China, you know, there's no, I don't mean, I don't think, it was just, it was just like crazy and the basket tipped over and dumped these tourists out from like 300 feet down in, onto a cliff and yeah, a- anyway, I've had some near, near death experiences, oh my God, I mean, I, when I first filmed Chris Sharma doing Just Do It, I ran up to the, to the top of the, um, what is that pass called? Um, Misery Ridge or Misery Pass? I think that's what it's called. Um, rec- the pass you go to drop down to the monkey face at Smith Rocks. And Sharma, I had just met him a few weeks earlier, but he was at the top of the pass looking down at the cliff, like the classic view of Just Do It. And they were traversing this boulder out over the cliff edge that was like a jug rail on a boulder that you could go across it was probably like just handlebars basically to a point and then you have to spam this one little spot and then go back out to the edge and the game was to go footless out over the edge of this cliff hang by one hand and then go footless back over and swing back onto the cliff and everybody was doing it like Sharma was doing it and I think Corey Dwan maybe was up there and 
and I, I had run all the way up the pass with my camera because I was worried that he was going to send it before I got to film it. And they were like, oh, yeah, check it out. You can just traverse out there. So I threw my pack down and being young and stupid, I just traversed out, did the hang, traversed back to the cliff. And as I was going to the place where you have the little gap in the jugs, I missed the hold, swung out by one arm. And I was like, you know, 600 feet off the Crooked River. And everybody on the edge of the cliff watched this happen. They were like, whoa, and kind of like dove for me to try to catch me. And I ended up swinging back and catching the hold and traversing back over. But it was like, everybody was like, holy shit, man, you almost died. And I was just like, yeah, that was really stupid. Let's, you know, that was a really, really bad decision. But, I mean, I never, I've never not tied my knot or anything. It's just making dumb, rash decision, decisions sometimes, you know. What were some of the trips or first ascents or route developments that you look back fondly Gosh. on from that? I was one of the first people with Boone and Jeff Pedersen, and um, I guess it was just the three of us mostly bolting at the Virgin River Gorge. Um, Boone, I bolted Boone when he did the first ascent of Fall of Man, when it was the only route on the wall, and bolted hell comes to frog town on the mentor cave when there was no other roots at all on that cave i was the first person to put bolts on that wall and then tom tom gilgey did the mentor right after found he used my anchors actually to use as anchors for the mentor um gosh i almost died doing that actually i was bolting on that and i got stuck and uh, i was on really loose bolts that was stupid I forgot about that <laughs> Um, I helped, uh, you know, Doug Heinrich and I think Conrad maybe told Boone and I if we, we were just starting to get into bouldering. It was right after we went to Waco. And he had told us that when they were ice climbing up in Joe's Valley, he had seen some boulders down in the river that might be cool for climbing on. And so we went down there that next spring or early spring and put up some of the earliest boulders with, I think it was Kelly Oldroyd. And the three of us were living together at the time. I think we went down there and did our first problems and spent all winter like going back and forth to, to Joe's doing new problems and then took a big crew of climbers from Salt Lake down because we were spraying about it we were like oh it's really good it's really good and took all these climbers like John Cronin and Shelly Preston was living here at the time and they went down there it was a day after it rained and or maybe snow melt or something but the rock was soft and we didn't really know not to climb on wet rock you know it was like early on and they were climbing on holds and they were breaking them and they were like this is Joss this is total garbage no one's ever going to come here this is not Waco it's never going to be anything and we were like oh really gosh it seemed like it was really good like are we crazy is it like was it really bad and I mean it's obviously turned out to be really really amazing and world class but yeah like that those those places and I helped bolt some things in Maple and developing a lot of the bouldering in Little Cottonwood with friends, like building trails, finding new areas. Um, yeah, I know I always kind of gravitated towards doing new things, like in American Fork. I was like, my hardest projects tended to be things that I bolted myself. I was always like most interested in doing new things and not repeating other things. Just at the end of the day, I just had a, the attention span I had was for my own stuff, you know, like just doing something brand new, you know? Mm -hmm. What was it like cleaning 
The Rock American forehead. Oh, oh, give me the play-by-play because I've seen <laughs> yeah. the chess and then oh the glue and how do you decide when yeah. this is the layer or these are the holes <laughs> I want to keep. I mean, so I think Salt Lake Ethics <laughs> have always been fairly open in terms of like we don't really have much great climbing but we have a lot of rock. So I think it's always been kind of accepted to just do as minimal impact as possible, but at the same time, make it good. You know, like, do the best job you can. If you're going to put glue on the rock or whatever, try to do it discreetly. Like, Pedersen was always an artist with this stuff, like, making sure that the glue is pretty hidden and trying to trying to be a little bit discreet with it for the most part and um, to, to some success better than others. But, um, I mean, American Fork was, I mean, it's just not that good of rock for the most part. There's exceptions, but generally it's just junky rock and... It's fractured and the rock itself is really dense, but it's completely like compacted and cracked everywhere. And you just have to be careful not to pull blocks onto people below you. And so to that end, we were just like, this is kind of a like, it's hard to take it too seriously and treat it too reverently when it's like, this is obviously garbage rock, you know? And if we don't do something, there's going to be nothing here. So we might as well make it something. And, and, and that's really, I mean, hell is very much a perfect example of that. Like the stuff we did in hell I mean, ethically, yeah, it's not, you know, there's no, there's no moral high ground any of us can take about that. But we also created a really amazing outdoor gym, basically. You know, it's like, it's hard. It's held the test of time in terms of its entertainment value. Like, people still go in there and have fun on those old roots, and they're still hard. And, um, yeah, it's not like going to say use or anything, but <laughs> it's still our local outdoor gym you know and like I mean I'm I'm really influenced a lot by what I saw with Ben Moon and Jerry Moffat and and doing hard things just for their own sake not necessarily because they're aesthetic or I mean trying to do the hardest moves you can is is the name of the game for sport climbing kind of and bouldering and it, to that end really like any cliff can do it you know almost any cliff like if it's steep and there's the right combination of holds and I think that was the attitude we took towards hell. Like when I, I bolted ice cream and gave it to Boone and I couldn't touch it, but I knew it was doable because I basically reinforced the holds that I knew would be necessary to go up the wall. I mean, it was basically the footholds of wizards plus a few extra holds, you know? And some of it was like, literally wouldn't, the holds wouldn't exist without glue. They would just not be there. They would have sheared off the wall. They were like these patina plates or whatever that would, or calcite plates that would have just crumbled, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's for all intents and purposes a manufactured route, but it was the first 14C in the canyon and in Utah. And, um, you know, it's like I'm I'm excited that it actually became something from nothing, you know. I like Mm -hmm. that, you know. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Bill Ramsey has a lot of really good things to say about the ethics of gluing and chipping, but I would never condone anything we did as, as an example of what to do. I mean, I think chipping is getting out of control, and I think people really need to, like, have a broader perspective before they make decisions about what they do to the rock or ask more opinions or, you know, just we were just doing what we thought was necessary to create a climbing area, which we did, but I think I see climbers nowadays or evidence of climbers nowadays going back to routes that have already been done and modifying them to suit their own purposes, and it's like to me, that's pretty blasphemous. I mean, I think that's, 
it's not based on the ethics of what came before, but it's more like acknowledging the climbers that were able to climb these things as they were and that you are not at that level yet if you can't climb them. So mm-hmm. be humble, go get better. Don't try to modify the rock to suit your purposes. I mean, I mean, none of us were trying to create a bunch of easy climbing. We were trying to make it as hard as possible, you know, and I think the granite in Little Cottonwood is pretty sacred. I mean, it's really, a lot of it's quarried, so it was already chipped by the pioneers, but those boulders are going to be there for millions of years more, and it's like, why not let somebody 200 years from now do that same problem that we did way back in the 90s, you know, and have fun on the same exact piece of rock if possible, you know? That'd be cool. It's, it's a cool time machine, you know, to be able to experience these things that in the exact same condition if, if possible, you know? I think that's, that's pretty cool. Like, I love that somebody can go and do Midnight Lightning in Yosemite and have the exact same experience for the most part as Ron Kalk doing it for the first time, you know? It's a pretty cool time machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said that Little Cottonwood, the rock there, or the boulders at least, is sacred to you. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit about what what well, makes Little so special to you? Little is, it's it's nef- definitely not like Yosemite granite. It's a little more, a little bit more exfoliated than that. But in general, it's really good rock and these, these figures, these like, even the quarried boulders that have these um, pen and feather holes in the sides or whatever, the dynamite holes, even those, essentially, if they're left alone, they'll weather just like that. They won't weather much for, you know, millennia. And it's kind of cool that like, you have a photo of Blue Still in your, in your office and it's like, that thing is as classic as climbing gets. It's like as pure of a line as climbing has. I mean, like it's more pure of a line than the nose in Yosemite you know it's like that's the line climb that you know and I think that a lot of climbing in Little Cotton is like that where it's like you you look at these lines and they're incredibly classic and timeless and will teach you a ton about climbing and every single year that I start climbing again and the snow melts it's like you have to go up and do that tune up in Little Cotton to learn how to stand on your feet again because it's so desperately hard and you forget like oh yeah you gotta put extra weight on your foot when it's that bad you know and all these lessons you got to relearn and it's so cool that we get to have this little area right up the canyon 20 minutes from the city where you can pretty much go have a bouldering area to yourself on a perfect splitter day and have a reverent moment in the woods having a great time with nothing just but you and your shoes you know and a crash pad and it's really really cool and I've gone and traveled to a lot of places all around the world and I haven't seen very many places other than like Paris with Fontainebleau and even that's two hours away hour and a half away from Paris but like there's not a lot of urban settings or urban cities with a climbing area that good right there I mean Boulder has Flagstaff Mountain which is fun but very limited and you know you I guess if you live in New York you'd go to um, Central Park in Boulder but I mean, is it like this? No way, you know? I just don't know that many places in the world where you have it, where you have a city right here and a bouldering area right there, and so much other climbing around as well. I mean, yeah, it's pretty. I think it's pretty special. I mean, it would be a real bummer if that gondola happens, mm-hmm. which looks like it will, but it's a bummer. It's a real, I mean, to me, that's like a stab in the heart, like the, the thought of them going up and doing construction on some giant 
project like that for whatever however many years it takes them, 10 years to put these giant towers all the way up the canyon and then have that view totally obstructed by this horrible eyesore of technology just to get rich skiers up the canyon further, you know, like, ugh, that's just, that makes me want to vomit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good afternoon, it's October 7th, 2022, uh, part two with Mike Cole. Um, I'm Telly Kasuchi, and we're in Mill Creek, Utah. Uh, so, Mike, tell me about developing uh, Little Cottonwood Canyon. Yeah, boulders. when I first started climbing, the only real boulders that were developed up there were mostly the boulders around the gate buttress, and they were really old problems that had been done there. And some, some more recent, like in the 80s, there were harder things like Superfly was done then. Um, but I think Hong's Pinch, I think Steve Hong did that. He must have not done that in the early 80s, I would guess. And then there were things that had been climbed on, I'm sure, into the you know beginnings of the um, early mountaineering clubs. You know, I mean, I think it's so obvious when you walk past that to go to the cliffs to see these boulders. And, you know, I'm sure that people were climbing on the green slab and some of those... Um, like direct heat and some of those problems on the backside. I'm sure people were doing those things in the 50s and 60s or at least climbing on them and not sending them. But um, when I first started climbing, the standard overhang was the kind of the test piece V4 or whatever it is, V3. And I remember when I first did that, I felt like, okay, I'm actually bouldering now. You know, I felt like that was like my first real boulder problem that I did. You know, like the stuff that... Um, Pete's Rock wasn't really bouldering. It felt just more like traversing and soloing a little, but it was kind of like, it never felt like I was actually doing boulder problems. And then when I did that, it was kind of like, okay, I'm actually bouldering now. And that was kind of right after I got back from my first trip to Waco. And I think the trip that Boone and I took to Waco in 89 really influenced how we looked at the bouldering little cottonwood and we started looking for more things that we could boulder on. And really thought of bouldering as its own thing pretty quickly and the Brits were already kind of making bouldering really a legitimate isolated form of climbing just to, just to be a boulder and um, we were really we thought a lot the same way as the Brits I think because of the, the scruffy nature of our climbing plus it's just really short routes around here so they tend to be bouldery so in a lot of ways we had a lot of similarities I think we saw ourselves in the Brits a little bit, you know. So we started looking around Little Cottonwood, and um, early on with Pusher, we put a very, one of the very first guidebooks to Little Cottonwood in the in the catalog, just a hand-drawn map of the secret garden with, like, Copperhead and All Thumbs and, you know, Lance's Dihedral and those things on it. And it was just a little topo that was one page, you know, in our photocopied catalog that we had. And, um, and I, I kind of think of that as, like, the beginning of the probably the most cliche, but golden age of Little Cottonwood discovery, kind of like us just really adopting Little Cottonwood as like a really amazing local climbing area, you know, like local bouldering area. And we, we basically were up there anytime it was decent for bouldering. I mean, when I was working at Pusher, the employees would basically like, if it was early spring or late fall, we knew that basically like part of the, benefits of working for a climbing company was like we were just going to shut the place down if we could and go send everybody up bouldering and so we'd be climbing with all the same people that worked with us at pusher you know it's like we, we were friends and we'd go up to little cottonwood and 
put up new problems together, you know, and um, right about 95 or 6, it was getting really crazy. There was a lot of people moving here um, to climb, and um, more people were going up the canyon. There was a bunch of people from the East Coast that were working for Pusher that were used to climbing in the gunks, so they were, you know, in the same vein. They were kind of developing local stuff for themselves up there, and so they were really rabid, like Mark Russo and Todd Verone and Dave Gurman. Um, and they, you know, we were just putting up problems. It seemed like every time we go out, we're putting up new problems. I mean, it's like um, the stuff above the Wasatch Resort, like where um, Babe and Paul Bunyan and that stuff is, and um, all that was discovered probably mid-90s, I would guess. And... John Cronin was really huge in the scene then. He was putting up a ton of hard problems and high problems. Um, but about yeah, 96, 95, somewhere in there, I, um, I was, yeah, just hiking around the hills a lot. And just even when it was too hot to find, to climb, I was out there finding stuff and saving it, brushing it, and building trails. And, um, and then probably the end of the 90s, so I think I found that the Glen or um, Ray's area kind of developed most of the stuff around Ray's area and the hill. I think that must have been 96, 97. And then near the end of the 90s, I was climbing a lot with Sam Tingey and we found a lot of stuff up in the canyons and he would always do the first ascents before me. <laughs> but um, we found this white pine shoots and... Um, I found um, the blind spot, which was like one of the last things I found in the canyon that I couldn't believe nobody had found. I think blind spot's one of my favorite problems that I did, my favorite things that I found and did, you know, like just it's such a cool, improbable, slopey, um, technical, harder ret, you know, it's like really cool. Like there's a stand start and a shit sit start and they're both really good and hard. Um, I don't know, like, I think, I think I said this yesterday, but I think my favorite thing is just finding new things, you know, like just going out in the woods and discovering and like the treasure hunt of that. It's really fun for me. Like, what if I just go another, over that hill over there, around that tree, maybe there's another boulder over there. And a lot of times for a while, we were just finding boulder after boulder, like, especially in the Wasatch Resort, there was, um, I mean, it's still going on there. It's still such a big, complicated, pretty vast area that there's still whole new zones being found over there that are like, you know, two or three boulders away from what you thought had been figured out. Like, um, you just go a little higher up the hill and there's a whole new zone, you know, it's cool. Like my back's been going up there even the last few years, like 2015 to 2020, he's been up there constantly, but putting up new things, you know? So yeah, it's pretty, it was a special era to be involved in climbing and to work for a company like Pusher who promoted bouldering as its own thing and how um, how many good, rabid climbers were living in Salt Lake at the time. And to just witness the excitement of that was really special, I think, you know? I mean, I think right now I think there's a big resurgence in interest in Little Cottonwood or maybe it's just a new generation of climbers that's interested in it that's created this whole new energy and 
people are doing, you know, B12 to B14s up there now. And it's pretty, it's pretty cool that they see the value in it too. They see the, the potential of it, not just that it's climbed out, but it's like, oh, we missed all the in-between hard lines, you know. It's like, you know, we just didn't climb that hard back then, so we didn't see them as lines, you know, a lot of them. Like, Dunks on Deck is just an amazing line, and it's like, we've all looked at that line. It's not like that wasn't a line that we saw, but it's like, first of all, it's a story off the ground, you know. <laughs> if you fall, you could really get messed up, but also, like, you got to be able to climb feet, 13 to really do something like that, you know, you gotta be comfortable climbing B13 and pretty much be on your own. You can't spot that thing. So mm-hmm. anyway, there's problems like that. That's cool. They're going down. They're just doing them, you know, Tim Kempel doing blue steel. It's probably one of the best boulder problems in the world. I mean, I'd stack it up against anything. Just I've seen boulder problems anywhere on the planet. And that thing is just like as classic looking or more classic looking than even like midnight lightning, you know, like it's a line. It's perfect line you know it's like the landing's not perfect but it's, it is like as a climbing line it's freaking amazing you know mm-hmm. um yeah and I think I think at the end of the 2000s I started getting more interested in or at the end of the 90s and early 2000s I started getting interested in more of the sport climbing side and um spent some time in American Fort climbing at some of the oldest areas down there and did an extension to uh, my first 13A, which was X, which is a kind of a soft 13A, but I did it probably in 87 or 88. And, um, and I did this extension out the, like where the limestone meets the quartzite band. There's this kind of overhang of this quartzite that right at the seam, like you actually rest in the seam right between the quartzite and the limestone. And then you, you do this vertical 13A and then you go out these roofs that are like, I don't know, another five bolts or something um, on this steep, like 30 degree overhanging quartzite blocks. That's almost like rifle climbing. Anyway, it's a really cool feature. And it was really fun to be able to find something that was like, goes back to my first 13A. And, you know, it doesn't make it that much harder, but it definitely changes the character of it, you know? I don't know. It's, it's always fun for me, like, going back to hell and I think I did a new route in hell in 2006, seven. that's right up the middle of the Diablo ball that's probably like a little contrived but it goes like it's a direct start essentially to El Diablo and I mean I think it's one of the more popular routes in that on that wall I mean it seems like people are always trying it and mm-hmm. San Miguel San Miguel yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, th- yeah, it's, it, I just like seeing, like, just as, as a game, just, like, seeing if I can find new things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I went down to the Cannabis Wall, which is one of my favorite walls in the canyon, and I don't remember what year I went down there. It must have been 2010 or something, or 11. And Scott Franklin had bolted a route on the Arete next to Underdog, and... It was like one of the first things he bolted, and he doesn't remember even bolting it, but everybody else remembers that he did it, that he bolted it. Um, but it was kind of weird because the way he had bolted it, you could climb over to Underdog and kind of avoid the steep side of the wall, and you could kind of reach around the corner and clip the bolts he had put on from Underdog, and like it was just weird, and that's probably why he didn't do it. It was just kind of contrived the way the line he bolted. So I was down there one time after I had done 
job abuse and looked at the wall and I was like, well, maybe you can start it from the steep side of the wall and climb into the arete so you don't get near underdog. And I went up there and just kind of started from the ground, just A-bolting up the line that's now um, perfect drug and found holes somehow. Like there was actually holes all the way up the thing, climbing directly to the, where the crux is now. And then it meets Scott's old bolts which I replaced with good bolts now, but they were all rusty. <laughs> but um, yeah, that thing is like, I think it's my favorite first descent I've ever done because it was on such a, to me, like one of the most premium crags in the, in the canyon. It's like, it's a beautiful setting. It's right off the road, but it still feels like kind of remote. Like you have the river as like this buffer between you and the road. So you just don't hear the road that much. And the wall, the whole wall pretty much is full of classic roots. Like every root on that wall is pretty much classic. And I was really like honored to be able to find something and do it, like do a first descent on a wall that cool and leave it as like the hardest root on that wall, you know, and like, uh, it meant a lot to me, you know, like my friend, Mike probably, he climbs, he, he, he's definitely a better climber than me, but he probably could have done it before me, but he, let me, he waited to try it until, you know, waited to try to send it until I did it, which was not kind of him. But he knew it meant a lot to me, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, I spent a lot of time bolting it and reinforcing holds, and it took me a long time to figure out how to do it. It was like a really tricky route, I thought. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think those are my favorite things that I bolted. I've, I've done a lot of developing in St. George, too, but... Um, not as much as people like Bill Oran, you know. Mm-hmm. He, he was he did so much down there. Mm-hmm. Did you norm typically kind of have some conversations with friends about this one's really important to me? Do you mind waiting? Mostly my best, my good friends. Like um, you know, Boom was always better climber than me. So if he got his hands on it, he was going to do it. So a lot of times, if I bolted something that was too hard for me, I just give it to Boom. Just be like, here, you do it. Like the present was like that, and the. Um, Ice cream was like, I was just like, here, here's a hard route, go do it, you know, and he would do it and maybe four, five, fourteen or harder. But things that are like closer to the great grade that like Mike and I climb, you know, if he had a boulder problem, he was trying a little cottonwood and it was important to him. I would, you know, I would try to do it before him. It wasn't competitive like that. It was just like, we both know that climbing is really important to both of us and like finding these things is pretty special and it's kind of a silly game. So you might as well just like, not be a dick and not try to do it for your friend, you know? <laughs> um, but I feel like the conversation with like protecting first ascents from other people doing it, I think there was a time in the nineties or eighties that there was a ethic to red tag something and say, this is mine. Don't try it. It's an active project. And all that kind of got tossed out the window at some point in the nineties, early two thousands, probably nineties where it seems like the ethics became more about just like, Hey, it's just a route. If it's there, I'm not, you can't stop me from trying it. it is, it's not personal. It's just that you're not good enough to do it. And I am, you know, and you know, I think that like these coast climbers, like Dave Graham and some of these guys were kind of just making that the norm, you know, where it's a little disrespectful, especially given coming from my generation where it seemed like you did the work, you found the thing, you cleaned it, you did all the trail building and you should have the first right of effort, you know, the first person to give it a real try. But then there was all this, also this 
pretty strong argument, I think, that if you just camp out on a project and don't allow someone to climb a perfect route that's just sitting there and you're not really either capable of doing it or have time to do it, then why not create, why not just give it to somebody and, and like, you still get credit for developing the route, even if you don't do the first ascent, you know, like, I mean, I think there were a lot of French guidebooks that would give credit all the time to the developer and then to the first ascensionist as like a courtesy, because it's like, it is hard work, you know, like cutting trails and like, or building trails and going like risking your life to get to the top of a sketchy chossy cliff to push sub anchors in so you can get down to where the anchors are supposed to go. And like, that shit's always so scary. Like so many ways to get hurt doing that. And, Mm -hmm. and you still have to have the vision to see where it really needs to go and where the bolts need to go. And it is, it's just like a, it's a kind of a thankless task, but it's also really damn fun. And it's fun to pioneer that stuff. So I can see both sides of the argument. I mean, I think nowadays there isn't really an argument people just go and do whatever they want. But, um, I think it's kind of a fun game, like with perfect drug to try to bolt it right in, right in front of everybody's plain sight and know that it's kind of game on, you know, like I've got, it's a ticking time bomb. Like I've got it. If I want to do it, I better be on it, you know? And, People like there were people trying it a little bit before I did it, like good climbers, like Steve Mace tried it, and um, I don't know how much he tried it, but he tried it a little, and then Andrew Wilder tried it, and I tried it, and I knew that eventually somebody was going to get bored one day and go do it, so I had to keep on it, and so I just went back like a fiend. I actually tore my shoulder on it the year, the season right before I did it, and I went back as soon as it was dry enough to try it I did it like the very next day I was on it you know I was like just gunning for it all winter it's all I wanted to do you know it's like mm-hmm. the only like it was the only thing I wanted to do like, <laughs> everything I did in training everything I did for rehab it was like 100% to go do that route you know because mm-hmm. I knew as soon as anybody got on it they were probably going to do it you know like mm-hmm. it's not that hard <laughs> it's just hard for me <laughs> uh, so also kind of in the kind of going back a little bit um can you talk a little bit about the snowbird Mm -hmm. comps and your involvement with those and kind of the impact for sure yeah those were hugely influential for a lot of people but especially for me coming into climbing and being so dazzled by these superstars in salt lake and then you meet these guys who are world cup champions and you know people coming to town like lynn hill and you know didier rabatou and Jiva Tribo and then the core setters themselves were international superstars just in their course setting and their route setting, um, like Antoine Le Ministrel and Christian Griffith and um, you know, these people were oh, like oh, was it Francois Petit maybe? I can't remember if it was Francois Petit or Fabrice Guillaume. I think it was Fabrice Guillaume. Anyway, these guys were like artists and there were articles in the climbing magazines about route setting that were kind of like to me just like, oh, this is it's like romantic and cool and artistic and the idea of like being a choreographer in a competition was really interesting to me like the idea of forcing people to try to do a move a certain way and punishing them if they don't do it the right way and forcing them to be creative and get into my mind to try to figure out what I was trying to set for them like I just thought the whole thing was pretty interesting and it's a lot like developing a route you're kind of determining where someone goes in a way and it's it's a kind of creative sort of a creative situation like that. Um, so yeah, like those guys came to town and 
seeing them in hell and seeing them in person and watching the power they had and this, the technique they had it was just ridiculous like it was like okay that's the this is the these are the best in the world these are the, this is the global standard for the best climbers in the world and um, it made us all just want to try harder and train more and build training devices and build climbing gyms and like get better because we were pretty far behind where they were in, in some cases I mean Boone was close to them but um yeah, it was really it was really influential for me, like watching course setting and then you know, it's kind of a cop out to be a course setter in some ways because you're you're basically not good enough to compete in a way. Like like the very best coursers probably now are good enough to compete with the best, but I think back then, um like Tony Nero, for example, was one of the best climbers in the world, but he probably couldn't compete with the people he was setting routes for. Like Scott Franklin or Jim Carn or you know, some of the, the top guys. I mean, he was an amazing climber, but maybe he just at some point thought, you know what, like, I'm better at the course setting side than the competition side. And, and we needed people like Tony Nero at the time, you know. And, and um, yeah, so I, I learned how to course set at the body shop and then went to Snowbird and kind of apprenticed and helped and set some of the qualifier routes and then helped with some of the semifinal routes and eventually ended up helping set the final routes. And then... Um, at one point there was a, I can't remember if it was an advertisement or somebody just told me that they were doing a, how was the abbreviation, IFCS or AFCS or something, I can't remember what the Sport Climbing Federation was in the United States at the time, but they had a tryout essentially for national level root setters and to do it you had to onsite a certain grade and red point a certain grade. And at the time I hadn't even onsited the grade I was supposed to, but I was like, oh, I'm just going to go anyway. And my mentor at Black Diamond, uh, Mariah, was like, MC, you have to go out and try. You have to go out and try. And I was like, how am I going to get to New York? I can't afford to fly to New York. And I don't even know how to get to Hunter Mountain, New York. And I was like, seven. No, no, I was probably 19. And she was like, I'll pay for your flight. You're going. And Russ Clune lived in New York. And he's like, I just met him. He's like, hey, come stay with me and my wife. And you can borrow our car and drive up there. And I was like, holy crap. And went out there met Mike Pont and Tony Nero in Hunter Mountain and they didn't know me from Adam and they were just like, okay, here's the semi-final route. You have to onsite it. And I was just like, holy shit. Like, right now? <laughs> Ended up doing well enough on it. They were like, okay, you're good. And, like, basically I was a course setter. As soon as I, I finished that competition with Mike and Tony and then um, the three of us sent the super final route between Jim Carn and Scott Franklin which I'm pretty sure Scott won. can't remember that. Anyway, um, then I set a Nationals in Montreal a few months later as my first solo Nationals. And then once I did that, I was like fully qualified. And then I set another Nationals in Boulder a month later, two months later. But then after that, I kind of stopped route setting. I was just like, as a job anyway, I was just so busy with Pusher. That's, that's when I started really working for Pusher and on shaping holds and trying to run a business, you know. Mm-hmm. That sounded like one big long run-on sentence. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Punctuation is going to be tricky on the transcription. <laughs> it always is. Is <laughs> <laughs> <Just> a sentence? <laughs> um, I find it interesting that they had you climb on site instead of setting something to see if your setting was actually 
decent. Yeah, I, I can understand that. I mean, I think at the time, like, I think you have to be, so to be able to be a good root setter, I think you have to be able to parse grades mm. by feel. I think you need to yeah. know what 12C feels like, what 12D feels like, and the difference between the two, and what 13A feels like versus 12D, and... Yeah. I mean, at the time, that was kind of the on-site level of the, of the roots, and um, I can understand why they did it because it's like they don't know me, and they don't. They, I have no. They have no reason mm-hmm. to believe I'm even qualified to know the difference between twelve A and twelve C or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and um, it's a subtle thing, and it's it's sort of like I have to know my own strength. I have to know how fit I am compared to like you know what I, how how fit these guys are going to be when they show up and who's coming and how tall each of the competitors are so you're not hosing anybody and all these things that we used to think about. And I think it makes sense that they did. I mean, they did really analyze my setting after that. Like I was setting, like they were like, okay, now go set this women's qualifier second round or whatever it was. I was like this, they'd started me off with a really entry level routes, Mm -hmm. the less consequential routes. And then they'd go through and give me pointers or advice or be like, oh, this is cool. Like, like he did this and, but you probably want to put a foothold here or something. And it was pretty much though that I'd done enough route setting that we could just essentially go to work and we ended up like kind of working together for the mm-hmm. most part, you know? Okay. I mean, Mike Palm, I think was one of the most gifted route setters I've ever met. I mean, he was a, he was a full on artist, you know, he was, you know, he was amazing. And I think anybody that climbed on his roots thought the same. He was just like far and away the best route setter in the country at the time, you know? Mm-hmm. So I mean, he and I got along really well and he kind of showed me what, you know, what he liked to do. And I, I liked his creative style, you know. He was he had a really cool, creative, rock-climbing-based root-setting style. Like, he would do, like, all, all any kind of different style that he wanted. He's like, I'm going to make this, like, a, you know, pumpy layback section, and it's going to go into this underclean roofy thing. And he, like, he had it in his brain, like, kind of what he wanted to do when he was sitting on the ground with the holds. Mm-hmm. And... I was always kind of more like thinking about the geometry of the body positions and how they all connected to the next one. So I was always like, I wasn't thinking quite as much like rock climbing like he was, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> and nowadays it wouldn't even make sense to anybody. I'm like, what are you talking about? Uh, so then uh, you kind of stayed in even that route setting, but kind of some of the competition... <laughs> Scene yeah. in terms of uh, PCA and then eventually the Seco Block mm-hmm. Masters. Can you talk about kind of that yeah. role in those? And yeah, totally. Um, so PCA was the Professional Climbers Association started by um, Scott Meckler, and it was a derivative competition series from a series that he had been doing on the East Coast in Philly. I think it was in Philadelphia, um, called Bring the Ruckus where he kind of came up with, I think, what the World Cup bouldering format is today. I think they saw that and they've used it as the standard for how bouldering competitions go, which was the five minutes on, five minutes off, four or five problem format. I'm pretty sure Scott invented that. If I, if I, I could be wrong, somebody's probably going to hear this and call me out, but I think he was doing that in the early 90s. And it was kind of when bouldering competitions were not even a thing. Like, it was kind of like rock climbing competitions were a thing. And bouldering, like, there was the Phoenix bouldering contest and the Pocatello pump. But a bouldering contest in a climbing gym was kind of not really... I mean, first of all, there weren't really bouldering gyms yet. There were training areas, but there wasn't, like, a space for enough 
problems to put up a competition on for the most part in the early 90s and then I think he came up with the concept and then Mike you could tell who was from New York and was one of the investors and um, co-owners of Pusher loved the idea of doing a competition series that was professional and paid cash to the athletes and made the athletes kind of these personality figures and in order to do all that they needed media done they wanted to make videos so of course they asked me to do the videos because I was right there in the office and Mike bought the front climbing gym after he bought Pusher bought a share of Pusher and um, once he expanded the front into a new building from the Sandy location it was like the perfect venue for a competition at the time it was like this perfect like almost like a theater wall of climbing walls so you could just stack people in to watch people competing on these walls and um, yeah we wanted to make it kind of bigger than it's ever been and make it more um, visible or more watchable like we wanted the crowd to love it as a live experience and then we also wanted people who didn't get to see it live to watch it on the internet a few weeks later as an edit that was like wow that's that's really cool and you see like the best climbers in the country really actually showed up you know it's like I mean, I think at some point Malcolm Smith showed up and Nels Rasassen was huge and I mean, some of the best boulders from those times were there, you know, the early ni- early 90s. It was like, it, I think it really helped create a lot of energy around bouldering that kind of legitimized bouldering in the late 90s. You know, I think those that era did legitimize bouldering. I mean, it was happening all around the world, I'm sure, but in the United States especially, it was like, the PCA events were legendary, you know, it was like, they were pretty badass, and you could just watch somebody trying to onside B12, you know, and, you know, the drama of it, like waiting for Sharma to come out last and see if he was going to flash the last problem to win, it was like, that drama was really cool, it was like, you know, live action, entertaining, and it was super entertaining, you know, like, yeah, anyway, it was, it was a cool time, and I, I was really lucky to be a part of it, and be front row to it, and to contribute, you know, part of what I would like to do, which is video work and help create that energy, you know, try to like help translate it to people because, you know, only a few hundred people actually saw the things live, you know, mm-hmm. so, yeah, yeah, I, I feel like I've been pretty lucky in general, like put myself in these positions of risk in a lot of ways where I, like I go into categories that are unknowns or um, like I'm first to market with some, some things which is good and bad like sometimes it's really painful but um, it also lets me be front row to it if it happens to take off you know like the bouldering boom was something that I was a, a small part of you know and I, I could help help that fire grow Mm -hmm. which I feel pretty fortunate about you know Mm -hmm. oh definitely I think videos too like same like nobody was making videos when I was doing it you know like nobody was editing their own climbing videos back then (laughs) now everybody's doing it on their phones but (laughs) at the time it was cool like there was only like me and then Josh Lowell and a few other people doing it you know Mm -hmm. doing it the way we did it Mm -hmm. definitely yeah, how has 
internet and or like I guess modern internet <laughs> you know download speeds and streaming oh, yeah. and like the we want content free mm-hmm. like how how do you think about that now well it's it's interesting like it reminds me of like um I don't remember who said it. You probably know who this is, but I can't remember who it is. Somebody says something like, you know, anybody could be a writer if all it took was to, take, was to have a pen and paper or a typewriter. Like, just because you have a phone in your pocket doesn't mean you're a filmmaker, you know. But at the same time, there's different levels of filmmaking, right? There's like home videos where you just like pull out your phone and shoot something. As it's like, like if you see a deer running across the road, that's that's you call that filmmaking. But anytime. Josh Lowell puts a video out, you're going to watch it because you kind of understand what he's going to, like he's going to give you something kind of special. He's not, he's not out there just shooting home videos. He's doing something professional and intentional and there's story, sorry, storytelling elements to it. And so, yeah, there's a lot of people making videos now and some stand out and eventually you earn the trust of your audience by saying, oh, I've got to remember this guy's name because he makes good stuff, you know, or this production company or this whatever, like you earn a reputation and it, I think it sort of weeds itself out, you know, in some ways. It's like YouTubers are everywhere, but there's only a few YouTubers that people remember. You know, there's millions of them, but there's only like a few really big ones, you know. And it's hard to get yourself noticed. I think it's, I, I was pretty lucky when I started because there was nobody doing it. So nobody was comparing me to very many people. It's just that I was doing this one specific thing and I was the only one doing this one specific thing for a minute. And now I think to make your name you've got to do something pretty spectacular to get that sort of singular focus from an audience. And I think it's harder, but you also have the benefit of learning how to make films from all the videos that have been done. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, like you're in a bigger pond with a bunch of big fish, but you also, it's just the schooling of filmmaking and video making out there is just everywhere. You know, if you pay attention, like, there's so many climbing films to watch online for free now that you can learn from. And if you're not too intimidated, it's pretty cool to learn from it. You know, it's like pretty lucky to have that vast knowledge base to draw from to learn how to do what we do. And none of it's magic. Like, anybody could be a filmmaker. It's not that hard. It's just a matter of, like, doing it. You know, just having a point of view to take and doing it. Like, te- figuring out what story you want to tell and completing it, you know. Yeah, what's your decision-making process in terms of the stories that you want to tell now, and how do those, how are they similar or different than what you started on? I think the first stuff I did was pretty much pure climbing porn, to be crass about it. I mean, it was just purely like what I thought was funny or cool, or and it was really random access, like arbitrary. There was there was almost no real story thread to it and as I learned how to assemble things better and and especially with frequent flyers that was actually a proper story and that's when I was like okay this is that's why I kind of consider that my first real film because it actually had a beginning and a middle and end you know it's like we knew when we started we knew when we finished and it was like what we got in the middle is kind of like you know that's up in the air but we definitely went on a journey we definitely saw a bunch of amazing places and met a bunch of amazing people and I think that arc 
sensation of like completing a story and then delivering that and trying to tell like a um, abstract concept in a linear way is really what I got hooked on and I think that's what I started doing more and more and nowadays I think I'm more focused on telling more human stories or more um, like I'm, I'm doing a series of videos for Black Diamond right now that I've done two two of them working on my third one right now that's just basically portraits these mini documentaries about friends of mine and things that to me are kind of these life lessons that I've gotten from them or, or from knowing them and yeah I think the more I make films the more I make them personal the more they become more personal to me like the I mean it's it's not speaking from the third person as much it's more like direct knowledge of the thing that I'm talking about that feels more authentic you know or more like coming from a place of um personal connection I think that's what I, I tend to be doing right now I don't know maybe it's just being older but you read my my next question is immaturity <laughs> <laughs> and some more vulnerability <laughs> yeah I think being more comfortable being taking chances with my own exposure like I've always kind of not been comfortable being in front of the camera and like I was in a video once that somebody made right when I was making my first climbing video they, were, they did a film called Three Weeks in a Day where I was one of the climbers in it with Dale Goddard and Boone and my friend Sherry Rich and um, I was like I did it because it was a great opportunity to go climbing and get get a free trip out of it but I wasn't really that comfortable being in front of the camera and climbing in front of the camera just never felt right and I kind of never really liked putting myself in any of my own work or like there's a few clips of me here and there in some of my videos but like yeah I think now it's it's not that I want to put myself in the films it's just more like it's the place that I actually know something about which is how I feel so I think I, you know I feel like with filmmaking people have such a good bullshit factor or sorry they have such a good bullshit filter where they, if they see something true, they know it's real. They can sense when someone's lying to them about the film or they're trying to hide, like they're trying to trick them into liking it or like um, pulling editing tricks or manipulating the story to go a certain direction. But when you actually hear somebody be vulnerable and real, I think that um, it, it immediately buys you a lot of um, equity with your audience. Like I think it, you know, being vulnerable, it's like, okay, like, this person's actually being real right now. And that's, that's, I think, one of the most, to me, one of the most um, magnetic things about a film is when you actually buy into it for whatever reason. You're actually like, okay, I'm in. You know, like, you get this sense of, like, I'm settling in. I'm going to follow this guy along on the story and see where it goes because I'm interested now. And that vulnerability is a really, it's a scary thing to do as a filmmaker, but it's also... Um, it's kind of the only thing you really have as a filmmaker that's yours, just yours, is that your point of view is only yours and you have to trust that if you, I, I feel like if I trust that pe other people out there might feel the same way, then it'll resonate with that audience and that's the audience I want to tell the story to anyway, you know, like 
whether it's a sad story or something like um, just emotionally evocative, then it becomes like if I can relate to the audience as a human being, then the audience will buy into them, into the story as a human being. And then we're, we're kind of like on the path together, you know, and it, I don't know if that makes sense, but <laughs> that's how I kind of mm-hmm. think about it now. I think mm-hmm. with storytelling, like everybody feels alone in the world until they hear somebody else say something or, oh man, I heard this thing. I can't remember who said this now, but it might've been Ethan Hawke or something, but essentially like when, when you talk to somebody who's an artist and you're like, they're embarrassed about their profession or they're like, well, I, you know, I didn't really go get a real job. I'm just an artist. And it's like at the time, like most of the time when people are going about their lives, they see art as this extravagance or this extra thing until you lose something or you have tragedy happen to you or, or the world changes in a huge way for you. And then the thing you turn to is poetry and music and movies. And those are the things that suddenly you find human that you can relate to that you feel like I'm not alone in the world, you know, and I'm kind of butchering the quote, but I think the essence of that is true. Like people turn to art in a way to find their humanity again, in a way to find solace or companionship in times when nothing else works, you know, like dopamine doesn't really work. You can't just go, you know, I mean, you can go shopping and do therapy, retail therapy, whatever, but it's not like nothing fixes the real thing going on deep inside of you if you're, if you feel like you're totally alone. But to know that somebody else might have felt this similar thing or, you know, that's why, it's why people post, like on Instagram, when someone dies, they post poetry. They post, you know, beautiful photographs or they say these beautifully simple tributes to their friends or whatever. They're just basically poems or... or um, it's art, you know, it's like this, it's like a, they, they have to do it in a way that's evocative in a really simple way. And that's just getting to the root of being human. So I think that's to me, what the best filmmaking is, is when there's actually something really human that the filmmaker's trying to say, you know? So for me, that's kind of where I'm trying to go right now. It's kind of, it seems like what I'm really mostly interested in. That's why I'm telling these stories about my friends, you know, it's like, I can be real about these extraordinary people around me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, have you, I know you've done some non-climbing mm-hmm. work. Do you uh, find that resonates with that work too? For sure, yeah. I think the best stuff, I, or the, my favorite things that I've worked on are that's true for as well. Like, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I worked with a woman named Barbara Koppel, who was a freaking two-time Academy Award-winning director, on a project about Mariel Hemingway and the Hemingway curse and the um, alcoholism and suicide that was rampant in her family, and how um, how Mariel was able to kind of escape that curse and like become get sober and and basically figure out mental health for herself. And it was really cool to listen to her, the director, talk about how she wanted to tell the story because she didn't even really care what the images were we were shooting. She was listening to what people were saying. and She was listening for these real human moments, you know, and that's her directing style is she would listen to it like a radio edit. She would listen for the story inside 
and trust us to shoot what we needed to for the film and for the editors. But to her, the storytelling happened in um, what she heard. And I think she was a sound person before she was a director. Um, but anyway, I, I've learned a lot from a lot of the people I've worked on non-climbing film stuff with. Like, there was a cinematographer on 127 Hours that um, his name was Anthony Dogmantle and he won the Academy Award for Slumdog Millionaire right before we worked on 127 Hours and I was lucky enough that to get on that crew as the, the third camera person and he basically was really generous with me and, and taught me to kind of let go of all of my training or everything everybody had taught me about shooting and to shoot the way I wanted to, like how I felt it rather than how I was supposed to do it. And he kind of like deprogrammed me a little bit from the TV training that I had done with framing and composition and stuff like that to kind of just more shoot emotionally and more, um, almost back to where I started in a weird way. Like I started shooting handheld high video with my dad's camera and then tried to make it more and more structured with tripods and, you know, gear. And then in the end, it's like what you actually, like hand holding a camera is the most human way of holding a camera. It's like this, you feel the camera person holding it sometimes. You can tell that that person is like, like some of the best cinematographers I study or follow are really evocative um, with their handheld work. You know, like how they interact with the actor directly one-on-one one on one and anticipate where they need to be in the room for the next thing that's about to happen and decide if you're going to stand close to the actor for a close-up or if you're going to back away and let it be a little more isolated. And I don't know. I find all that stuff really interesting. That's really fun to play with that stuff. I think it's really complicated and it's really... like I feel like I could be a cinematographer for 50 more years and still be kind of just still learning stuff, you know, like, it's crazy, it's kind of endless, you know. What would you have told, like, yourself starting out, lessons that you've learned now that you, that you would have shared, <laughs> or share with someone starting out? In filmmaking? Mm-hmm. In filmmaking. Um... I mean, I think one of the best things I had going for me was that I finished my projects mm-hmm. and it didn't matter if they were good or bad to me. Like I wanted them to be good, but if they were bad, I was kind of like, Oh yeah, that was bad. I'm going to do the next one. You know, it's like, and I think that was one of the strengths that I had. It wasn't that I was a great cinematographer or anything back then or, or even now, but I do finish what I started. So I would just stay, say, you know, don't stop finishing what you're doing. And I think I kind of wish I'd gone to school a little bit and learned how like dealing with filmmaking as a profession rather than just doing it on my own. But I don't know though. I, it, I kind of go back and forth. There's like, I never learned how to load film. I never learned how to deal with real proper film until I was like on set with somebody with a film camera. But at the same time, I think the DIY nature of my life helped me 
kind of find my own voice the way I needed to, you know? I don't know. It's hard to say. I don't really have regrets. I just kind of like... I guess I think one thing I would have wished I would have done a little bit more was more collaborations with people. Like, I wish I had started a media company with a few people and actually started, like, maybe instead of making Hannibal, we were making films, you know? That might have been... Because I think the team-making nature of filmmaking is really important, and you can't do everything on your own and do it well. And I did a lot of, most of what I did on my own, like, start to finish, like, sound editing, everything. I was doing everything on my own, and I feel like my work might have been more um, powerful if I had a team of collaborators, more of a team of collaborators. I mean, Boone was always, like, my number one sounding board for new work. I'd always show him what I was up to and he'd show me what he was up to and he was always brutally honest with his feedback and it was really helpful but yeah I think team, team the team making nature or the team building um, nature of filmmaking is kind of like if you trust someone else to do that role and you know they're really good at that role then you can really focus on your role and make your work even better that would have been cool but they're still, I, I still collaborate with people all the time now. But early on, it would have been really helpful, I think. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, it would have been cool if I had lived on the East Coast and worked with Josh Lowell directly and he and I, like, had formed a, a production company or something, it would have been cool, but it just never really worked out. Like, I worked with Josh on a lot of his films with dosages and king lines and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, logistically, it was, it was tricky, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, anything else that you want to talk about with your film career uh, before? Oh man, I can't talk about films forever. But I don't know. I'm proud of what I've made, and like I'm still trying to make my first decent film. You know, <laughs> I feel like I'm still like trying to. I'm still like beginning. In a, in a weird way, like okay, you know, the next one's always exciting. You know. Everyone's so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, I find it fascinating too that it seems to be like totally self-taught. Yeah. And you've had to uh, work with all these different mediums throughout the years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like with filmmaking. Yeah, with filmmaking. Yeah. yeah, it was really cool actually to think. When I think about after we talked yesterday, I was thinking about how incredibly um, it just seems so limitless now with the internet where publishing something is instant and you get it seen instantly and back then it was like I'd edit for a while then I'd make a master and then I'd show it to some friends and they'd say oh maybe you should change this and I'd go and re-edit it and then eventually I'd say okay it's done and then I'd go and get I'd pay some duplication house to make 500 copies or 300 copies of this thing on VHS and then I'd have to market it and tell people about it and then try to sell it and after a while we did film tours with like Best of the West and Big Game I did film tours with like maybe 15 locations where we'd go and rent out a theater and that's how it got seen and then you know it's just so weird how now it's like that's just I mean other than the real rock tour nobody's really doing that kind of stuff anymore you know like no, not a lot of people are doing that kind of stuff and 
it was kind of fun to be involved in, in a pre-internet, you know, like where mm-hmm. the distribution was physical. You had to go and buy a tape and put it in your VCR. And, um, it kind of did feel more special in a way, like more like an event when a film came out, like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, Dosage is coming out or Pilgrimage is coming out or, you know, whatever, like one of my videos is coming out and people are like, there was only three or four films that got released every year, you know, and, and, uh, the idea of a feature film in climbing is pretty much dead right now. I think other than the big guys like Jimmy Chen or mm-hmm. the center films guys or, or Josh Lowell stuff, like they're still doing it for real rock. But even that, it's like the real rock stuff is four or five small films or three or four small films that are all really great and very different, but not it's not like a big concept film that takes four years to make like um you know some of this stuff i mean best of the west and big game were multi-year projects you know it's like mm-hmm. two different trips and a couple years to get them done and like I, I think the last video i ever did that was a feature-length film was called heraclea and yeah no i know it was it was the last film i did and um it was this trip to turkey we did to develop bouldering and I did a screening in Salt Lake but it was right when we were doing Momentum Video Magazine and we were releasing clips online and it was really different it was like we did it because we could and Brewbies would let us rent the theater out it was really easy to do but um, I'd be hard pressed to see doing that again you know I don't know Black Diamond talks about releasing all three of these videos in this series that I'm working on as one piece at some point, but it's probably going to be just more like for Black Diamond employees and local Salt Lakers. Like, I, don't, I don't know. It's not the same thing, really. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't feel like the only place you're going to see this film is if you go to the theater, you know, mm-hmm. or buy the DVD or something. I don't know. It's cool. I mean, maybe they'll make a comeback again, like that whole like big concept climbing film. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, when Josh did... King Lines, I think they spent three or four years on it. I mean, I worked on a lot of the segments and, or some, some of the segments for sure. And it was, took a lot of money, a lot of time. And it's a big concept, you know, like many trips around the world, different places to follow Chris and tell his story. And man, it would take a lot for a company now to be like, okay, or the Don Wall, for example, like you've got a poster, like, when they were shooting the Donwall, I think that took them like eight years to make. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even know if they were going to have a film in the end. They mm-hmm. just kept sending Brett out to go shoot and film another season of attempts. And it's like such a stupidly hard project that it just seemed like it could just end up being nothing. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I know Josh has a lot of projects that never manifested into a film because the route didn't get done or mm-hmm. something else happened, you know, mm-hmm. to risk, you know. And nowadays, people just want the video like tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Put it on Instagram. You know? Yeah. <laughs> what uh, feature length film would you make? <laughs> um, I have if one you actually. Had no constraints. <laughs> I have one that I'm working on right now, actually, that is so, it's insanely ambitious that it might just stay a concept, but we're trying to pitch it to some investors this year and. If it happens, it'll be like one of those things that it needs to go to Amazon or Netflix. Like that's the only way to really do something like 
that we want to do that's it's like a proper film and it'll be like I mean I don't know what the budget would be but it's big enough that like there's kind of no other way to do something like this unless you have proper distribution from HBO or Netflix or something like that because it's it's going to require a proper filmmaking team like you need a full crew a full you know casting and locations managers and everything else like everything's going to have to be done right but it, it's a cool story and it kind of goes all the way back to the history of climbing and my history with climbing and not about me but I mean the history I know of climbing from my era and um, my friend's era and like I think it's a really relevant important story to tell and I think it's just as I mean the story that we're trying to, to tell is just as important as telling like soloing the nose kind of like in, in terms of the history of climbing it's like just as important mm-hmm. and just as formative for people so yeah hopefully we get that made hopefully hopefully before I die that'd be cool <laughs> I would love that I don't know I'll tell you about more not recording. <laughs> okay. I'm going to use your restroom real quick. So yeah. we pause for a second. Okay. So how do you balance your climbing, your personal life, filmmaking, all of, all of those things? Or attempt well, to? Well, so it's not easy. I mean, I had a lot of life changes in the last few years and I have a girlfriend now. I I... I'm taking less, I'm trying to take less travel work. I'm trying to be more, a little bit more selective about what I do for work. Um, even though it's, it goes against all my nature to say no to anything. It's like, at some point, I trust that there will be more work if I say no to this one. And, and that there has been, and, and like, um, I'm, I've always been kind of eat what you kill kind of worker. I just kind of, when I, need to, when I need to work, I go find work, you know. Um, but I've been prioritizing my climbing more this year. I mean, I've had two shoulder surgeries for full rotator cuff re- rebuilding. And so the last few years haven't been very productive for climbing for me. But now I feel like I've been training and I feel stronger than I did in my early 40s, you know. In, in some ways, my shoulders feel better and... Yeah, I'm more selective about how I spend my time climbing and where I go. and um, I don't feel like I have to climb as much to get as much out of it lately. Like, I, I can get a lot out of it in a little short, short amount of time. Um, but I really love climbing still. Like, I still, like, my girlfriend loves learning about climbing. She started five or six years ago, so she's, like, on this really steep learning curve still and has a long ways to go before she gets to her like her top of her peak, you know, and, and, um, I don't know, I, I feel like creatively I'm pretty good about knowing what I want to do now like a little bit better than I did, like not just doing any project, but doing really the ones I really want to do. And I mean, I'm pretty aware that I only have so much time to get these projects done before I die. So and I've always felt that way. It's like I've only got so many projects I'll do before I die. And that's a, there's a limited number there. And same with routes that I'll do or days of the cliff or days with my son. Like there's this, like there's a, there's a finite number to all of it, you know, and I don't know what that number is, but there is a finite number. And 
and like you know as I lose friends uh, or people die or whatever it's like they, they will never have another day in the mountains they'll never have another, another day to decide what the, how they're going to spend their Saturday and I've just been trying to be more careful about how I do that now you know like I'm not very good at it all the time but I'm more aware of it than ever just like okay are you going to say yes to this project like I got asked to go work on a TV show in Montana on this massive hit show as a behind the scenes director and, and camera guy and I was like the money was great it was union work it would have been essentially enough money to handle like I could, could have taken a whole year off of work if I wanted to but it was like do I really want to spend six months of my life in a hotel room far away from my friends and loved ones and even though it's creative work and it's fun and it's all the things I thought I wanted in my life back a lot, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, it's like, you know, I just had to say no to it because it, it didn't really, it's not what I wanted to do with this six months of my life. You know, like six months of my life, I mean, how many blocks of six months do I have left? You know, not, not a lot. Like, it's not like, I don't, it's not like I have hundreds of them, you know, like there's a limited number of those six month blocks that I have left. So it's like, I need to be careful about each one of them, you know, like, or each month really how I want to spend time mm-hmm. sorry I'm going to just tell this okay. what's the biggest challenge you see facing the climbing community and that can be here in the Wasatch or just in general hmm I mean the resource of rock is definitely the first thing that comes to mind as far as issues I mean how to deal with the natural playgrounds we have are really are, it's a really limited resource as well like Joe's Valley Little Cottonwood American Fork like these places are definitely at risk just from overuse and over population I think and you know this thing that's going on with the gondola right now it's kind of an example of how the user groups are not aligned in their agreement with what to do with these things. And you've got the skiers and the people that own the ski resorts versus pretty much everybody else right now on this gondola thing. And the climbers are only one small piece of that pie of the user groups. You know, you've got hikers that are a way bigger group and mountain bikers are a huge group and fishermen and just all kinds of people that have a voice in this thing. And I think for climbers... It always seems like you'll never lose something until you lose it, like Waco tanks or something. You know, like once you don't have it anymore, then you're like, oh, the good old days when I had Waco to myself, or Little Cottonwood back in the '90s when you could just park on the side of the road and go anywhere you wanted to, and it was just the wild west. You know, like it never seems like something's going to change until it does, and then else it's like once it's gone, it's gone pretty much. Like it's very rare that things open back up for more for use. It's more more often than not the restrictions are happening more and more and I think for climbers especially starting out now I think it's a really sensitive time and it's like they are part of the problem we are all are, are all part of the problem with overuse and at the same time I feel like if we're smart and we have places like or, or groups like the SLCA who can organize these massive numbers of people it can become a benefit to have so many new climbers and so many numbers and you know become a lobbying group that's actually powerful and it's 
it just depends on how supportive I think the general public and climbing is with groups like the SLCA or the AAC or um, any of the any of the lobbying groups. You know, it's definitely sketchy. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the uh, little and the gondola, did the quarrying back in the day? Did that seem like a a smaller was that was that threatening when that happened the at the gate buttress yeah at the gate buttress or was that no it definitely felt like the beginning of an encroachment on climbers access because mm-hmm. it was just done with like th- there was no conversation that was really going to change their minds about that there was interaction with the solid climbers alliance and Back then, I think it was like Steve Downs and Jonathan Knight and some of those guys who were early in the the early phases of the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance who helped negotiate the um, revegetation program or whatever they called it, like the regeneration program where they basically like tried to make it look like there was a quarry there and, and it's all, all grown back in and you almost can't see what they did now. But, um, I mean, they devastated, well, they harvested a ton of rock out of there mm-hmm. and it's theirs to do it with. I mean, their land of course they're going to do it but I think it was the first time as climbers we were just kind of like whoa they're just going to take that boulder like that boulder had cool problems on it you know and mm-hmm. you realize that it's like actually it's just building material it's mm-hmm. just it's like pulling concrete out of the dirt at the point of the mountain you know it's like that's just what people do it's mining it's just natural resource usage and and it's sacred to us but it's sacred to them in a different way you know like to them, it's sacred to have little cottonwood rock that was used to build a temple to be used as a facade for the church office or the new conference center. Mm-hmm. So who are we to say, you know, you can't use your own rock? Like, of course you can. Like, of course they're going to do whatever they want. And they've been really gracious in letting us climb one of those buttresses that have roots all over them that they, they could easily just say, no, you guys can't climb there. You know, they've been, it's been really gracious to them. But, that, but um, Man, there's not that much climbing up there. Like, there's a lot, but there's not that much, you know? Like, if they start whittling away and taking this area away and that area away, and, like, you know, like, all of a sudden you're left with, like, half the climbing or less, you know? I'm like, oh, man, that was a really cool area. We can't even climb it anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I, I think for Salt Lake climbers or Utah climbers, that's the biggest thing I, I can think of to be worried about. Yeah. The gondola. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and widening. if it's not the gondola, it's going to be something else in 10 or 15 years, you know? Like, you never know what's going to come up where someone's going to want it. Like, it's not our land. I mean, some of it is, but yeah. Forest Service land is also susceptible to restrictions. And, yeah. I don't know. What impact do you hope to have on, I guess, both climbing community and then also the filmmaking? Community. What do I hope? What? What, what impact do you hope oh, to have? Um, or think you've had? Oh, man. I don't know. I mean, I think for climbing, I hope people like the routes I put up and have a fun experience on them like I did because I, I think they're fun. Some are really fun. And with films, I mean, I guess there's a lot of nostalgia to it in terms of the time period that I was making films and hopefully becomes kind of like 
just part of the history of climbing, you know? I mean, hopefully, it, like, whether you like them or not, it's still recorded a moment in time that only I, only I was able to capture. So maybe that will be interesting to people for a while, you know? Mm-hmm. Nice. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that we haven't talked about? I'm sure we could talk for a long time, but that's probably good. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please keep in mind that the views and opinions expressed in this interview are solely those of the oral history participants and do not reflect any views, opinions, or official policy at the University of Utah or the J. Willard Marriott Library. For more information about this podcast, check out the ascentarchive.lib.utah.edu. That's A-S-C-E-N-T-A-R-C-H-I-V-E dot L-I-B dot Utah dot E-D-U. The Ascent Archive podcast team includes librarians Tally Casucci and myself, Rachel Whitman. Special thanks to Leah Donaldson for graphic and website design, Brian Elias Hull for music, and thanks to the University of Utah Special Collections and the American West Center. And lastly, the rock climbing community for participating in these interviews and listening. Mm -hmm.